0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television.
1: Hitchcock Lectures to be delivered by Professor Richard Dawkins. And obviously, you already know the name and are fans of his work. The Hitchcock Professorship is one of the earliest and most cherished endowments at the University of California at Berkeley. It was developed from a bequest made by Dr. Charles M. Hitchcock in 1885. He was a San Francisco physician with an extensive interest in education. The intention of his bequest was to establish a professorship at the University of California for the purpose of giving free lectures on scientific and practical subjects. Uh, In 1930, Dr. Hitchcock's daughter, Lily Hitchcock Coit of Coit Tower fame, contributed additional funds to the memory of her mother and father. She was, during her lifetime, one of San Francisco's most colorful figures. An enthusiastic supporter of education and intellectuals, she regularly held a salon with the intellectual giants of her day, such as Robert Louis Stevenson and Professor Joseph LeConte of the University of California. Her generous bequest greatly expanded her father's original gift, making it possible for the university to liberalize the terms of the professorship and to present a series of Hitchcock lectures. The great extent to which this endowment has enabled the university community to become closely acquainted with uh, distinguished scholars from throughout the academic world is demonstrated by the list in your program. If you look at it, you'll see a list of who's who of American and European intellectual and scientific thinkers in the 20th century. Um, the university is proud to see the tradition of the Hitchcock professorship so eminently upheld today by Professor Richard Dawkins. Professor Dawkins is considered to be one of the most renowned evolutionary biologists of our time, and the ultimate ultra-Darwinist. He completed his undergraduate and graduate work at Oxford under the instruction of Nobel Prize-winning biologist Nico Tinbergen. After a two-year stint as assistant professor of zoology at UC Berkeley, From 1967 to 1969, he returned to Oxford, where he became a fellow of New College and is currently professor of the public understanding of science. I think that's very apt that this lecture series has been promoted for the public understanding of science, and Professor Dawkins is already holding that chair so well in England. A gifted writer, he is known for his popularization of Darwinian ideas, as well as his original thinking on evolutionary theory. Dawkins has authored numerous books, including the bestseller, The Selfish Gene, which, as I recall, was on the New York Times bestseller list here for quite a long time, as well as The Blind Watchmaker, winner of both the Royal Society of Literature Award and the Los Angeles Times Literary Prize. The televised version of his book won the Sci-Tech Prize for Best Science Program. In his most recent book, Delusion and Appetite for Wonder, Dawkins examines the connections among science, mysticism, and human nature, and argues that, quote, science at its best should leave room for poetry, unquote. In his lecture today, entitled The Gene's Eye View of Creation, The Genetic Book of the Dead, Professor Dawkins will address many of the perplexing questions surrounding the recent developments in genetic research and the incredible implications of these advancements. Without further delay, I am pleased to present you Professor Richard Dawkins and to welcome him back to Berkeley.
0: There's no such thing as an ultra-Darwinist. There's just Darwinists and watered-down apologists for Darwinists. This is a place where I spent two happy years in the morning of my life. And now, in what an Englishman might refer to as the tea time of life, it's an enormous pleasure to be back. And a special honour to be invited to give the Hitchcock Lectures. Thank you very much for that honour and for your hospitality. I have a sense that there is some ringing going on. Uh, um, Could we sort that? Uh, Is that better? No, it's come back on again. Maybe we just, just use one of the microphones and not the other. The distinguished American philosopher, Daniel Dennett, only slightly exaggerated when he wrote, Let me lay my cards on the table. If I were to give an award for the single best idea anyone ever had, I'd give it to Darwin, ahead of Newton and Einstein and everyone else. It is an exaggeration to say that Darwinian selection is the only driving force of evolution. Some evolutionary change is non-Darwinian, some of it is neutral, in the sense of Kimura, the great Japanese geneticist. But it's not an exaggeration to say that Darwinian natural selection is the only explanation, the only workable explanation that's ever been suggested for adaptive evolution. And it is adaptive evolution that, for me at least, is the most impressive aspect of life. Surely design is the single most impressive feature of life. The illusion of design, I should emphasise, because it is, of course, an illusion. That's a cuckoo, and I shall have a little more to say about cuckoos later. We recognize adaptation as complexity, by which I mean statistical improbability. That is a picture of a human baby with just the blood vessels left. And the total length of blood vessel in a typical human body is about 50 miles. That's a diagram of the inside a cell. Each of those blobs represents one chemical substance and the lines between them represent chemical reactions. All that is going on within each one of your cells, or many of them. But improbability complexity is not enough. It must be what has been called specified complexity. To borrow Fred Hoyle's well-known image... A hurricane blowing through a junkyard and having the luck to assemble a Boeing 747 would be impressive, not just because the 747 is an improbable way to assemble a whole lot of components. It's actually no more improbable than any particular heap of junk, because any particular heap of junk is as unique as any other particular heap of junk. The thing that's special about a Boeing 747 is that it works. In this case, it happens to fly. And that's what's special about living things too. They work. They fly. Or they swim. Or they run. Or climb. Or burrow. Or evade capture by lying on the sand and looking exactly like it. Those are the details of the differences of the things that they do. But what they all have in common is that they are all working to stave off the thermodynamic slide to entropic disorder. They work to stay alive and to reproduce. That's not quite the most precise formulation we can produce of what they work to do, and that's what I want to come on to. What is all this adaptive complexity good for? For whose benefit is it? The most naive answer we can give is just plain good. This was satirized by J.B.S. Haldane, the great British biologist, as Pangloss's Theorem, named after Dr. Pangloss in Voltaire's Candide, who thought that in this best of all possible worlds, all is for the best. Pangloss's Theorem is so naive, it doesn't even distinguish workable theories of evolution from intelligent design. You can immediately see what's wrong with Pangloss's theorem when you watch a predator running after its prey. What's good for one of them can't possibly be good for the other. (laughs) It's a pretty fair bet that anything that's good for somebody is going to be bad for somebody else. Darwin himself recognised that the natural world is not a harmonious bed of roses. He said, I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created the Ichneumonidae with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars. The point here is... Sorry, I've gone ahead too much. The point here is that um, Farb... For example, described the behaviour of ichneumons. This actually is a digger wasp, but it does the same thing. Uh, What it does is, having caught a prey, in which it's going to lay its eggs, it stings the prey, not to kill it, but to paralyze it, so that it stays alive during the time in which the larva of the ichneumon or digger wasp is feeding on its insides. And what Fabre observed is that the wasp carefully stings, sticks its sting in each one, each ventral ganglion in the ventral nerve cord of the caterpillar, thereby paralyzing it and not killing it. Hence Darwin's horrified response. Here are some examples of Panglossian theories which you'll find in the literature of biology. I'm not going to go through them all. You can read them. And, uh, for, for example, the idea that lemmings jump over cliffs in order to prevent overpopulation. Doing what's good for the community as a whole. Pangloss's theorem. It may not be obvious what's wrong with all these theories at the moment, and one of my aims in this pair of lectures on the genes-eye view of creation will be to lead you to think in such a way that you immediately know what's wrong with all six of those Panglossian theorems and many others. In a way, the Darwinian's task is to wean himself or herself off Panglossianism. And I'm going to go through a number of numbered stages, numbered alternatives, improvements on Pangloss's theorem. For example, this is hardly an improvement, it's even worse, if anything, for the good of humans. And I put this slide up just to remind us that of the myth of the noble savage, the idea that uh, so-called primitive peoples lived in harmony with the world and, and looked after the ecosystem in a way that wicked modern humans don't, is total nonsense. Here's some more Total Nonsense from Medieval Europe. The pheasant partridge and the lark flew to thy house as to the ark. The willing ox of himself came home to the slaughter with the lamb. And every beast did thither bring himself to be an offering. Douglas Adams (laughs) developed this idea A bizarre conclusion in his splendid book The The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. It's part of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The hero and his friends sit down in the restaurant and a large quadruped obsequiously approaches their table and in pleasant cultivated tones offers itself as the dish of the day. It explains that its kind has been bred to want to be eaten and with the ability to say so clearly and unambiguously. (laughs) Something off the shoulder, perhaps? Braised in a white wine sauce? Or the rump is very good. I've been exercising it and eating plenty of grain, so there's lots of good meat there. Arthur Dent, the least sophisticated of the diners, is horrified. But the rest of the party order large steaks all round. And the gentle creature gratefully trots off to the kitchen to shoot itself. (laughs) Humanely, it adds, with a reassuring wink at Arthur. Now that really gives us the clue. This fictitious animal was bred to want to be eaten. And we, of course, have bred animals and plants not exactly to want to be eaten, but to be better for our purposes. So there is a sense in which at least some living creatures have evolved, albeit under human influence, to be good for humans. And what Darwin realised, of course, was that you only have to substitute nature, natural selection, for uh, artificial selection, to get what really does start to make sense, the next of our numbered alternatives to Pangloss's theorem, good for individual survival. This is a lantern bug... And uh, what's neat about it is that it's facing the opposite way to what you think. Um, That's the back end, that's the front end. You can see the head there. This is a false head, false antennae, false eyes, false mouth parts. And the idea is quite simply that when a predator attacks it, the predator will anticipate the bug is going to move to the left and aim the wrong side. (laughs) Needless to say, the bug doesn't know what it's doing. This is entirely pre-programmed behaviour and pre-programmed morphology, programmed by natural selection. This snake is not a snake, it's a caterpillar. Good for the animal's survival, and again, the animal doesn't know it resembles a snake, but natural selection uh, has favoured those ancestors which did become like snakes. This is a comma butterfly. It's only just hatched out. Uh, You can see the chrysalis on the right. And you see the ragged outline, which is part of its mimetic resemblance to a dead leaf. One can only suppose that the ragged outline is no good for, is, is at least slightly detrimental to its flying performance. And it demonstrates to me the fact that natural selection nearly always produces a compromise between alternative benefits. The benefit of camouflage, in this case, needs a ragged outline, and that there is a compromise between that and the optimal aerodynamic design, which probably, I don't know, but my guess is that it isn't ragged in that way. Another famous example of a compromise, a peacock. Uh, The gorgeous plumage of a male peacock certainly does nothing to help its own survival. It's a compromise between the needs of individual survival and reproduction. Obviously, in this case, it's being attractive to females. And this brings us to the next of our alternatives to Panglossianism good for the individual's reproduction. Darwin recognised clearly that survival is only a means to the end of reproduction. Once again, the bright red throat pouch of a frigate bird presumably does nothing to aid the survival of the individual frigate bird. It's attractive to members of the opposite sex and perhaps also intimidating to rivals. But why is reproduction important? What's so special about reproduction? There's a right answer, a right way to approach that question, and a wrong way. The wrong answer stems from a common euphemism reproduction, which is that it is propagating the species. And this has led to a whole flowering of erroneous theory, so-called group selection, the theory that natural selection is choosing alternative groups rather than alternative individuals. But a much sharper consequence of reproduction is that the genes of an individual are passed on. Genes matter, not because they're more important than the environment in controlling development, but simply because genes have the unusual potential of immortality. Not the DNA molecules themselves, they are very far from immortal, they don't last very long. But the coded information in the nucleotide sequences of the DNA Those sequences are potentially immortal. They may go on for a hundred million years unaltered, although they usually don't go on for as long as that without change. They can survive through unlimited generations. Not all of them do. And that precisely is natural selection. Natural selection becomes full of successful genes. There is a winnowing of genes through geological time. What you're left with in the world is the successful genes and, of course, their products, those products that made them successful. So having reached the level of the gene, we finally are talking about survival, pure and simple. It was never correct to talk about survival of the individual because survival of the individual was always just a means to the end of reproduction. But it actually is literally true that natural selection is favoring genes in the sense of coded information in genes which are good at surviving. And that to me is the simplest possible way of expressing natural selection, although of course it is easy to express the same thing in other terms, and I'll come to that in my second lecture. You can talk about an individual maximizing its Darwinian fitness, which means the same thing. it's statistically the case that genes are likely to be present in the bodies of other individuals than the individual itself or its offspring, then natural selection can favour behaviour which uh, increases the survival of other individuals who are not the direct offspring of the individual behaving, and that again is something that I shall come to in the next lecture. It is the key to understanding the social insects. This is a remarkable example from social insects. Those two are both sterile workers from the same species. Either of them could have become the other, the little tiny one on the top riding on the head of the giant one underneath. This is an example of what's achieved in social insects. We owe our Understanding of the evolution of social insects largely to W.D. Hamilton, my beloved colleague who died a year ago. Almost exactly. The general title of my two lectures is The Gene's Eye View of Creation, and I've now said enough about this general theme to move on to the specific topic of this first lecture, The Genetic Book of the Dead. Many people find that they understand Darwinism better using a sort of backwards way of looking at things. You stand in the present and you look backwards through geological time. Every individual in the world is descended from an unbroken line of successful ancestors. Literally unbroken, they're all successful in the sense that they have all had at least one child. They've all survived the hazards of childhood and they've all successfully copulated with at least one member of the opposite sex. That cannot be said of the vast majority of creatures that have ever lived but it can most certainly be said of every one of your ancestors and every one of the ancestors of any other animal you care to look at. This is Trivially true, but non-trivial in its consequences. Because what it means is that in every generation, the individuals that we see are descended from an unbroken line of successful ancestors, and they've tended to inherit whatever it takes to become an ancestor. And that, in a phrase, is Darwinism you can think of it as, again, a selection of genes because that which they inherit is, of course, only the genes. This genes-eye view of evolution is often misunderstood. People often think we are genetic determinists or are saying that only genes are important in building bodies or that it's only genes that determine whether an individual survives or not. None of those things is true. Non-genetic factors or luck... We're getting ringing again, I think. Are we? Okay. Non-genetic factors or luck will be decisive in determining whether an individual survives, whether it successfully reproduces. An individual may be successful because it happens to live in an area where there aren't any predators. This is not thanks to its genes, or it may not be, it just happens to live there, or an individual may be unsuccessful because it's caught by a flash flood or struck by lightning. If there's no statistical tendency for possessors of certain genes to be caught by floods or struck by lightning, the death will be no doubt tragic for the individual, but irrelevant for evolution. Plenty of deaths occur randomly with respect to genes, but it's only those ones that occur non-randomly with respect to genes that matter for natural selection, because that's the only ones that are going to be recorded for the future in the gene pool. This way of looking at things is sometimes disparaged as mere bookkeeping. You can call it bookkeeping, but don't call it mere. Bookkeeping suggests a passivity which is entirely misleading, the significant causal arrows go the other way. This is a diagram based on Weismann 's notion of the continuity of the germ plasm. These organs here at the back of the animal represent the germ line, that subset of the uh, animal cells which whose, whose genes are destined to be passed on to the future we could think of them as the gonads and you so you have a line of flow of genetic information from gonad to gonad to gonad down through many generations that's the vertical passage of genes through generations at the same time the copies of the genes which reside in the body of the animal have arrows that go to all parts of the animal. By arrows I mean causal influences that go to all parts of the animal and influence its shape and its behaviour and its physiology, its biochemistry. So it is the non-germline copies of the germline genes which are responsible for whether or not the germline genes survive or not. And it is crucially important that although you can call it bookkeeping, as the generations go by, as the generations go by and the genes are filtered, winnowed, down through the generations, they are bookkeeping in the sense that they they record changes in the gene pool which are relevant to survival, what really matters is that there are causal arrows going from the genes via the processes of embryology influencing the shape and size and behavior of animals and it's that which determines whether or not the germline copies survive or not. So bookkeeping it may be but that's very misleading if you think of it as mere bookkeeping. To make the case that this backwards way of looking at things can be put in another way. An animal is a description of the worlds in which its ancestors survived and more to the point its genes constitute a written description of the worlds of its ancestors. A species is an averaging computer. It up, the gene pool of the species builds up over the generations, a statistical description of the worlds in which the ancestors of today's species members lived and reproduced. The description is written in the language of DNA. It's the genetic book of the dead. It lies not in the DNA of any one particular individual but collectively in the DNA of the whole gene pool of the species. If you find an animal's body, a new species previously unknown to science, and you hand it to a knowledgeable zoologist, they should be able, by dissecting it and examining it and looking at its proteins and looking at every aspect of it, they should be able to read its body and tell you what kind of environment it lived in. More particularly, what kind of environment its ancestors lived in, because it's the ancestral environments working through natural selection that have determined the genes that made the present body. Did it live in a desert, in rainforest, in arctic tundra, in temperate woodland, coral reef? The zoologist should be able to tell you by reading its body and ultimately by reading its genes. By looking at the teeth and guts of the animal, you can tell what it ate. Looking at its stripes and its flashes, its horns and its tusks, you can read out the social way of life of its ancestors. But zoological science has a long way to go. We can do that sort of thing at an intuitive level, but the zoology of the future will do it, I suspect, in other ways. They'll put into a computer many, many more measurements than we normally describe anatomical, physiological, biochemical measurements and analyze them mathematically to try to see how they interact and use those interactions to predict, not to predict, to postdict the environments that were responsible for the natural selection of that animal. In a few cases, an animal's body is literally a description of some aspect of its ancestor's world. Uh, This is a stick caterpillar, and every detail of its body is a description of sticks. That's a leaf-cateded, describing leaves among which the ancestors of that animal succeeded in concealing itself. That's a snake, which is a description of the dappled pattern of sunlight on a woodland floor. The leafy sea dragon is a description of seaweed so perfect you can almost identify the species of seaweed being described. The moth is a painting of lichen on the tree bark, or in the case of the dark morph, a painting of soot-covered trees in industrial areas. But just as art doesn't have to be literalist and representational, animals can be said to render their world, to describe their world, in other ways, impressionistic or symbolic. An artist seeking a dramatic impression of airspeed could hardly do better than the shape of a swift. Sometimes, the fit of an animal to its world is intuitively clear, either to common sense or to the trained eye of the engineer or biologist. Any fool can work out why water-dwelling animals have webbed feet, for example. There are other things about water-dwelling animals which they might all have in common and which might be less amenable to common sense. This is a picture of a number of water-dwelling mammals, and it, for a start, illustrates the fact that quite a large number of different groups of mammals have independently returned to the water. And I say returned because, of course, the remote ancestors of, of all mammals lived in the sea. But a large number of land dwelling mammals have gone back to the water, uh, including rodents. That's a. Oops. <laughs> Mistake. That's a capybara. I'm having trouble with a. Yeah. That's a capybara. Um, that's an insectivore of some kind, a little shrew of some kind. I can't see what it is. Um, that, I think, is a water a kind of mole, um, these are more insectivores, I think one of them is a tenrec, that's a duck-billed platypus, those are otters, and there are a whole lot more. Most extreme, of course, are the whales and the dugongs. The zoologist of the future might be able to do something like this. Take each one of these mammals that has returned to the water, and pair it off, I don't mean literally, but I mean on a bit of paper, pair it off with the nearest relative you can find, a mammal that's not returned to the water. So we have a whole set of matched pairs, aquatic, terrestrial, aquatic, terrestrial, and so on, and we then measure lots and lots and lots of measurements of all these animals. Not things that are obviously going to reveal the aquatic adaptations, but things which you just don't know what they might reveal. Biochemical measurements, physiological measurements, anatomical measurements of, of reasonably obscure kinds, hundreds of them. Put them all into the computer, and then tell the computer this. This lot of animals have all got something in common from which they, by which they differ from this lot of animals. Now look at all the measurements I've given you on all these animals and find out what is the coefficient, what's the number by which you would have to multiply every measurement in order to maximize the discrimination, maximize the differentiation between the aquatic animals and the terrestrial ones. And then look at your table of coefficients to find out which are the features which tend to be characteristic of aquatic animals. Webbed feet is obviously one that would come out with a high coefficient. So would nostrils that you can close at will as uh, used by seals. But what there might be is lots and lots of other features that it never occurred to you might have something to do with the aquatic way of life, but which this piece of research would tell you right look at those now and try to work out what it is about them that has something to do with living in water. And you could do the same thing with, oh by the way that next slide that I gave you a sneak preview of, this is how I would go about testing the uh, rather maverick, eccentric theory of Alistair Hardy and Elaine Morgan that our own species may uh, have passed through an aquatic phase uh, not too far in the past. Um, What Elaine Morgan has done, and Alistair Hardy before her, is to make an anecdotal list of features that that our species has, like loss of body hair and uh, a layer of subcutaneous fat which, at an anecdotal level, do indeed tend to go with the aquatic way of life. And my proposal is that we could use this uh, computer method to um, look at a, a far greater number of features and see whether humans do indeed line up with all those aquatic animals, those water tenrecs, those water moles, those water shrews, otters, and so on. We could do the same thing with genes. Without any prior hypothesis about what the genes are doing, we make a systematic search for genetic resemblances, for genes that are held in common by that whole list of aquatic mammals, and specifically not held in common by the complementary list of terrestrial mammals. And if we find any strong, statistically significant effects, correlation, between between particular genes and the aquatic way of life, then I would say that what we are looking at in those particular genes might be regarded as a genetic description of watery worlds. Natural selection, to repeat, works as an averaging computer doing the equivalent of a calculation that's not unlike the calculations that I've just been postulating we we might program our man-made computers to do. Natural selection is doing that kind of calculation, using genes in gene pools as its equivalent of the bits of information in our computer. Often, a species embraces various ways of life which are radically different from each other. A caterpillar and the butterfly or moth which it turns into are members of the same species and they have an identical genome. But our zoologists' reconstruction of their two ways of life would be utterly different. If we look at the body of a caterpillar, we would reconstruct a world of plants and of rapid growth using uh, digesting plant material. If we look at a butterfly or a moth, uh, we would, on the contrary, be looking at a world of nectar uh, and pollen, and it would be an entirely different world if you look at the bodies. If we look at the genes, however, the same set of genes contains a dual description. It describes the caterpillars' world, the ancestral caterpillars' world, and it describes the ancestral butterfly's world. Male and female of most species live in, usually in somewhat different ways. In most species including our own all males and all females contain almost all the genes for being both male and female. The difference lies in which genes are turned on. We all have genes for making penises and we all have genes for making uteruses regardless of our sex. So once again our future zoologist reading the body of a male or reading the body of a female would Encounter would discover a description of different worlds, a male world or a female world. But if you look at the genes, you would discover a joint world. Parasitic cuckoos, I said I'd return to cuckoos, they're an oddity, and a fascinating one from the point of view of the genetic book of the dead. As you know, cuckoos are... ...reared by a species, foster parents, of a species not their own. They never rear their own young. Not all are reared by the same species of foster parent. In Britain, some cuckoos are reared by meadow pipits, some by reed warblers, fewer by robins... ...and a rather large number by dunnocks, that's the same as hedge sparrows, and a minority by various other species... our foremost authority on dunnocks is also our foremost authority on cuckoos and nick davies has just produced this splendid book cuckoos cowbirds and other cheats which i strongly recommend and from which quite a lot of what i'm now going to say is taken unless otherwise stated i should be talking i shall be talking about the common cuckoo cuculus canorus, but uh, nick davies's book Discusses all brood parasites, including American cowbirds, uh, African indicators, honey guides, and, and um, various Australian birds, and so on. Notice the picture on the cover, which is a dunnock or hedge sparrow that's an adult hedge sparrow feeding a juvenile cuckoo. Uh, presents a fairly ludicrous picture, um, and that is the feat of manipulation that the cuckoo manages to achieve. There's another one. Uh, The quotation is from Chaucer, the Parliament of Fowls. Um, That's a reed warbler. The bird on the left is an adult reed warbler uh, feeding a a, uh, just-fledged cuckoo. (laughs) The life story begins, the baby cuckoo hatches out usually slightly before the eggs of the host parent and uh, the first thing the baby cuckoo does is to go through this remarkable piece of behavior where it instinctively moves around until it feels an egg in the small of the back and it then shuffles its way up the side of the nest and throws the egg out. is the nest of a reed warbler. The two smaller eggs are reed warbler eggs. The slightly larger egg is a cuckoo egg. You notice that the colour is remarkably similar. The cuckoo has achieved a mimicry of the pattern of the reed warbler egg, but it has not managed to get sufficiently small. Cuckoo eggs are smaller than they would like to be, so to speak, for a bird of their size, but they're still larger than the host in most cases because in most cases, the host species is a lot smaller than the cuckoo. So once again, we have an example of evolutionary compromise between two needs. Uh, Presumably, for physiological requirements, the cuckoo would like a bigger egg, but in order to um, fool The foster parents, it goes for a smaller egg. And as you would expect from that, it is the case that reed warblers are um, capable of discriminating cuckoo eggs under some circumstances and will uh, throw them out uh, or or else desert if they detect them, but a sufficient number of times they don't, which is why we have um, cuckoos that parasitize reed warbler nests. Having looked at that rather good egg mimicry, now look at this here. This is a uh, set of pairs of cuckoos and the uh, cuckoo eggs and the host that they parasitize. You see the names at uh, at the left robin on the top, pied wagtail, dunnock, reed warbler, meadow pipit, and great reed warbler. Um, In each case, the egg on the left is the host species and the egg on the right is the cuckoo. Um, The size difference is pretty marginal in many cases. Um, What I want you to notice is that uh, first the egg mimicry is good in some cases but very poor in others. In the case of the dunnock here, the the dunnock's own egg is a rather nice plain blue. It doesn't show too well uh, in in this projection but it it is a very uh, plain sort of duck-egg blue, slightly darker than duck-egg. And um, the cuckoo eggs that have been found in dunnock nests are nothing like dunnock eggs. On the other hand, uh, meadow pipits, both very dark, great reed warbler, speckled in a similar way, that you've seen already. Robin is is intermediate, it's not very good, but it's not brilliant. Pied wagtail is pretty good. Now this picture throws up two puzzles. First, why is mimicry so good in the case of some host species but so poor in the case of others? And secondly, how can one species of cuckoo mimic so many different species of host anyway? How does the same gene pool of cuckoos manage to produce Dark, almost black eggs for the mimicking me- me- meadow pipits, and light speckled eggs for mimicking uh, pied wagtails, say. let 's take the second puzzle first. These cuckoos are all one species. If they weren't, it would be trivial, it would be easy. But they 're all one species. That means that there's gene flow among all the cuckoos that are mimicking all these different hosts there's a complication and it's a fascinating one. Female cuckoos learn which species they were, which host species they themselves were born in the nest of. So there are meadow pipit cuckoos and there are robin cuckoos and there are reed warbler cuckoos in the female line only. Every female learns which kind of host nest to go and lay her eggs in when she grows up. And so you could think of it as a kind of cultural tradition passing down the maternal line inheriting by cultural means, by traditional means the preferred host species. Males also obviously have to be born in one host nest or another, but males do not discriminate when they mate. They will mate with any female cuckoo regardless of which um, host nest they came from. So you could say that the females form a kind of separate separate species. There are meadow pipit females and robin females, which as far as females alone are concerned, you could think of as a separate species. And they're not called species, they're called a gens, plural, gentees. So there is a robin gens of cuckoo and a meadow pipit gens of cuckoo. Males don't belong to gentees. Males, just as I say, mate with females of any gens. Well, I said the problem would be trivial if these were really separate species, if every male knew which gens he belonged to, i.e. knew which species of cuckoo he was brought up, species of host he was brought up by, and mated only with females of that gens, then we would simply have separate species of cuckoo, and there'd be no problem. But the males, as I say, mate with the wrong, mate with any old gens, and so there is gene flow by males only. Males carry genes from one gens to another, you could say. Now... How are we going to solve this riddle by the thinking about the genetic book of the dead, by thinking about the ancestral experience of different parts of the genome? Most of the genome of a cuckoo, of either sex, can look back on its ancestors and say, I have spent a lot of time, I spent equal time depending upon the ratios of parasitization, I spent time in my ancestral past, in robin nests, in meadow pipit nests, in pied wagtail nests, in dunnock nests. But any part of the genome which happens to pass down the female line only, if there were such a part of the genome, that part of the genome could look back on its ancestors and say, I have only ever been in robin nests or I've only ever been in meadow pipit nests. And so that part of the genome, if called upon to write its genetic book, to write its description of the past, would write, or would be, at least could write, an, an accurate description of robin eggs or of reed warbler eggs. So the riddle would be solved if there were some part of the female genome which passes only down the female line, and if that part of the genome is the one that carries the description of egg, colour, and pattern. Well, there, is, there are at least two parts of the genome that have that property. Um, the, there are mitochondria, uh, which... And that's a diagram of a typical animal cell. And mitochondria are... These bodies here... They, are, they work for, um, in the cell to do the um, uh, respiratory metabolism. They're a vitally important part of the metabolism of the animal. But what's interesting from our point of view is that they have their own genes. Uh, they are, in fact, originally bacteria. They, they started out as bacteria, and they reproduce as li- little colonies of bacteria-like creatures inside cells. They have their own genes, and they pass down the female line. And so if the genes controlling egg colour were carried in the mitochondrial genome, our problem would be solved. The other thing is that in birds, the Y chromosome, it's actually called the W chromosome in birds, but I'm going to call it the Y chromosome. The Y chromosome is the one that passes down the female line. You know that in mammals, males are XY and females are XX. In birds, it's the other way around, females are XY, and birds are XX. Put yourself in the position of a gene sitting on a Y chromosome in a mammal, and you could say, all these other genes on other chromosomes have had, expe- had equal experience of male and female bodies in their ancestral past, but I, sitting on a Y chromosome, have only ever experienced male bodies. In birds, it's different. If you're a gene sitting on a Y chromosome, you can say all these other genes have experienced both male and female ancestors, but I on the Y chromosome have only ever experienced female bodies. So the Y chromosome passes down the female, female, female line. The Y chromosome can say to itself, I have only ever sat in reed warbler nests, or I have only ever sat in meadow pipit nests. And so if the genes for making egg colour are on the Y chromosome, once again in birds it's called the W chromosome, then again the riddle would be solved. I exaggerated when I said have only ever experienced meadow pipit nests because cuckoos make mistakes from time to time. Uh, A female cuckoo will sometimes lay an egg in the wrong nest, in a nest other than the one species in which she was reared that of course is presumably how new gentees get formed the second puzzle why is egg mimicry so poor in some gentees and so good in others Davies makes use of the idea of arms races the arms race, it's pretty similar to human arms races. You could think of arms races between predators and prey, between parasites and hosts, and indeed between cuckoos and hosts. In every arms race, the parties to it have other calls on their time, on their energy, and on their resources. The cheetah and the Thomson's gazelle are running an evolutionary arms race against each other, and resources that either of them needs to put into outwitting the other one, winning the arms race, could have been put into other life needs such as rearing offspring, building nests and so on. So every animal is playing an economic balancing act between the different calls upon its time and its resources and the resources that it puts into the arms race are then not available for putting into other things. When John Krebs and I wrote our paper on arms races in 1979, we suggested that arms races could end in victory for one side or the other, and we were particularly concerned with cuckoos, for two possible reasons. One we called the life dinner principle, um, this comes from Aesop's fables where e- it's observed that the rabbit runs faster than the fox because the rabbit is running for his life while the fox is only running for his dinner. So There is an asymmetry in the costs of failure. And similarly, what we call the rare enemy effect. Um, the uh, cuckoos are pretty rare. Um, something like 1% or 2% or 5%, depending upon the species, uh, of host nests are ever parasitized at any one time by a cuckoo. And that means that a cuckoo can look back at its ancestors and say, every one of my ancestors succeeded in outwitting a host. But a host, when it looks back on its ancestors, can say, many of my ancestors never even met a cuckoo. So there's an asymmetry in the costs of failure. An adaptation on the part of a a, a, of a, of a Dunnock to outwit cuckoos is not a vital adaptation. An adaptation on the part of a cuckoo which fails in the cuckoo's mission to outwit the host. Failure is always fatal for the cuckoo. So once again we have an asymmetry and Krebs and I suggested that it was this kind of asymmetry which could explain ludicrous effects like what you see here, um, an adult dunnock is standing by and watching. That's the adult dunnock at, at the top standing by and watching while the baby cuckoo throws out the Dunnock's egg. And if you can see it, there's a Dunnock chick that's just been thrown out by the same cuckoo. And Davies actually observed the adult Dunnock simply standing by and watching that happening. The the, um, pictures I showed you earlier of birds practically getting their heads bitten off by these giant nestling cuckoos again seems to call for a really radical explanation and Krebs and I suggested that um, these that the cuckoo has won the arms race the cuckoo is like a drug to the host the cuckoo is an irresistible fix that the host has to have the cuckoo has evolved supernormal stimuli a supernormal gape, supernormal calls and the Theoretically, the other side of the arms race, the host, might evolve um, counter-adaptations, but we suggested the cuckoo simply wins the arms race because of the rare enemy effect. Nick Davies's own idea is different. He thinks that arms races... Oh, he's, uh, he goes a long way, way with that, and, for example, he's demonstrated beautifully elegantly by experiment that a, a cuckoo makes a noise which sounds like a whole nest full of reed warblers whereas a, a single reed warbler obviously just sounds like one one reed warbler. So there are... Look, cuckoos have fascinating manipulative tricks up their sleeves. But Davis's own use of the arms race idea is to say and explaining why mimicry is so good to some hosts and so bad to others is that some arms races are old and some are young. Some Like the Dunnock arms race, where um, the uh, the Dunnock is really pretty hopeless. I mean, it does almost nothing. It 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 never discriminates against eggs. It it doesn't even stop that kind of grand larceny going on. It. He thinks that the, that the Dunnock arms race is young. It's only been going for a few centuries. Whereas the reed warbler arms race or the meadow pipit arms race has been going for much longer than that. And so there has been time for both parties in the arms race to reach an advanced stage. The cuckoo's got very good at mimicking eggs, and the um, meadow pipit, whatever it is, has got very good at discriminating eggs. The, the Dunnock is at the beginning of its arms race, and so the cuckoo is having a free ride for the moment. Um, it's a slightly worrying... This quotation... more I can't do the old English, you'll have to read it um, at the top. Um, that's from Geoffrey Chaucer, the Parliament of Fowls in the 14th century. Davies likes to think that that's still pretty recent by evolutionary standards, and he's still allowed to uh, suggest that the arms race with Dunnocks is a young arms race. Actually, six centuries is... Uh, quite long when you think that you've got a... I mean, that, that, that's a large number of, ge- of generations. And we're now realising that natural selection in the wild can be so powerful that a great deal of evolution can go on um, in a comparatively short time. So I think this is an open question, but Davis certainly does have very strong evidence um, for his arms race theory. Now I'm going to c- conclude, I'm going to uh, read my conclusion to save time. The DNA of all mammals must describe aspects of very ancient environments as well as more recent ones. The DNA of a camel was once in the sea, but it hasn't been there for a good 300 million years. It has spent most of recent geological history in deserts, programming bodies to withstand dust and conserve water. Like sand bluffs carved into fantastic shapes by the desert winds. Like rocks shaped by ocean waves, camel DNA has been sculpted by survival in ancient deserts and even more ancient seas to yield modern camels. DNA speaks, if only we could read the language, of the changing worlds of camel ancestors. If only we could read the language, the DNA of tuna and starfish would have sea written into the text. The DNA of moles and earthworms would spell underground. Of course, all the DNA would spell many other things as well. Shark and cheetah DNA would spell hunt, as well as separate messages about sea and land. Whale and dugong DNA presumably describe very ancient seas, fairly ancient lands, and more recent seas, complicated palimpsests. Features of the environment that occur frequently or importantly are heavily emphasised or weighted in the genetic description, compared with rare or trivial features. Environments that lie in the remote past have a different weighting from recent ones. Presumably a lower weighting, though not in any obvious way. Environments that lasted a long time in the species history will cast a longer shadow in the genetic description than environmental events that, however drastic they may have seemed at the time, were geological flashes in the pan. It's only in a very indirect sense that the genes spell out descriptions of ancestral environments. What they directly describe after being translated into the parallel language of protein molecules, is instructions for individual embryonic development. It is the gene pool of the species as a whole which becomes carved to fit the environments that its ancestors have encountered. Which is why I said that the species is a statistical averaging device. It is in this indirect sense that our DNA is a coded description of the world in which our ancestors survived. And isn't it an arresting thought? We are digital archives of the African Pliocene, even of Devonian seas, walking repositories of wisdom out of the old days. You could spend a lifetime reading in this ancient library and die unsated by the wonder of it. Thank you very much. I think we have questions now. I, I don't know. I shall be carrying on the theme of the uh, the genes, eye view of creation in my second lecture, though not, of course, the genetic book of the dead. Do, do I call for questions, Chairman? Oh. Yes. yes.
1: Have some time. It'll be lovely.
0: Fine. Any questions? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, in this game between the cuckoos and our things the game between the cuckoos and this uh, list of birds that they parasitize, uh, there must also be local birds that are not, that the cuckoo does not uh, parasitize. Are those winners in the game? Have, has, has he ever put a? in uh, the, que- the question is this, there, there are obviously, um, well not obviously, but there are uh, many species which are not parasitized by cuckoos, and the question is, are those species that have won the race, or not? And Davis has looked at this very thoroughly. He's done it by trans- done a very elaborate series of experiments transplanting eggs from one species to another. His conclusion is that the answer is yes to your question. In many cases there are some species which look as though there's no reason why they shouldn't be parasitized by cuckoos, but they're not. There are other species that could never have been parasitized by cuckoos because they don't have the right diet. Cuckoos need a diet of uh, insects or other invertebrates and so there's no point. Cuckoos can't parasitize seed eaters for example and they can't parasitize birds that nest in uh, roofed nests with a hole that's too small for the cuckoo to get into. So those species are never parasitized and If Davies gives them, um, gives those birds cuckoo eggs, or indeed any other kind of egg, they don't throw them out. The interpretation of that is these are birds that have never in their ancestral past met a cuckoo. They've never therefore evolved the rejection response to foreign eggs. But there are other species which are not parasitized by cuckoos, and they do throw out eggs when these are put in there, suggesting that they have indeed come out the other side of an arms race. And that would be Davies' interpretation. Uh, Yes, right at the back. Uh,
1: When you talk about the averaging effect of DNA telling a story about the average environment of the past, why is there any reason to believe that reading DNA now would give you any particular detailed information about the past? If you average any data set into a number, you lose all of the, yeah. the
0: particulars of the set. So why is that useful I mean that, that's a good point and I, I can only think that there is a that there is a, a weighting in favor of the of the recent that the more remote past survives. For example, all all mammals have a remote past in in the sea, and this has, uh, for a long time, people have put this rather poetically and said that that the blood is a kind of sea inside us. Chemically, it has resemblances to the the sea. Um, I I suppose one would say that in, in those cases where natural selection doesn't need to change that very ancient Um, feature, it it will stay, but where it does need to change, uh, there will be a waiting in favor of the recent. So when you look at something like whales, which are overwhelmingly, the overwhelming impression is is of the sea, is of living in in the sea, nevertheless there are, uh, I suppose the reason we we know they're mammals at all is that they have residual um, ancient uh, features. So I, I don't, I mean, I, your point is well taken, and I, I don't have a, a good answer to it. Can we switch the machine off, because it's a bit dazzling. With, is, is there anybody around to switch it off? Doesn't matter, okay. Um, uh, yes? Uh, that's not necessarily about
1: genetics, but I wanted to know uh, what you thought were the best modern theories about the rise of
0: life. So, do you mean the origin of life? life yeah. I don't really have a view. That, that the, the the origin of life is a difficult problem. It's a problem for chemists, not biologists. It's um, it's a problem that a lot of people are working on. What biologists can do is to state the. Uh, that what has to be solved, and what has to be solved is the origin of something self-replicating. So we can tell, Dar- Dar- Darwinians can tell the chemists, what you've got to come up with is, uh, is, a, is a self-replicating molecule that arises spontaneously uh, by the ordinary laws of chemistry. Once that happens, then a form of rudimentary Darwinism can get going, and from that all relatively easily f- flows. Uh, the most fashionable existing theories, as you probably know, are the RNA world uh, and there are some rather uh, exciting ideas recently about um, life originating under extremely hot conditions, which might suggest that that we should look for clues at those so-called extremophiles, bacteria that live in hot springs um, and live in the uh, hot vents at the bottom of the sea. Um, my own, th- the only thought that I would add to the riddle of the origin of life, is that um, it's interesting to uh, consider how improbable an event we're looking for. Um, It's always been supposed that the origin of life must be a fairly improbable event. Uh, Nowadays it's becoming more fashionable to suggest that the origin of life itself may not have been a terribly improbable event, but the origin of complex life is an improbable or was an improbable event, um, and perhaps the origin of intelligent life too. Um, So it could be that life itself is reasonably common throughout the universe, but intelligent life is exceedingly rare. I think we know intelligent life is exceedingly rare because they've never visited us, um, and, and I mean neither in person nor by radio. So, um, if the if the slide from the origin of life to the to intelligent life were a very easy one, then I think the fact that we've never been visited would suggest, since there are so many stars, so many planets where life could have arisen, would suggest that we should be positively worried if some chemist came up with an easy solution to uh, the origin of life. Because if they come up with an easy solution, then we're, then we're left with a worry about why we haven't been, been visited. So I'm rather inclined to think that, um, uh, that that either the origin of life is a very, very improbable event. It could even be that it's only arisen once here. And if it has arisen only once, then the probability of it happening in some chemist's lab is so vanishingly small you can all go home and forget it. Um, but we don't know that, and I think it's more probable that life is rather common, but that intelligent life is probably rather rare. Uh, yes, right at the back. Yes, sir, do you have any thoughts on um, the lack of public education, or awareness of science in America? The last statistic I read is only like 40% of Americans still believe in the literal Bible. And the general sense of a Darwinian worldview at the turn of the millennium as the kind of global world faces these pressing kind of ecological questions. Yes. I mean I I don't live in this country, and I think it would be presumptuous of me to pronounce on um educational. <laughs> <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> Research that's been done, um, not not specifically on, 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 on the Darwinian question, but on uh, knowledge of science generally, both in Britain and America, suggests that there's not much difference between the two countries. In both countries, an extraordinarily high percentage of people, for example, think that humans coexisted with dinosaurs. I mean, 30 or 40 percent. Um... An extraordinarily large number of people uh, are un- don't, don't know that the earth orbits the, the sun. The, the, in some vague sense, they think the sun orbits the earth. Um, so um, the lamentable state of evolutionary education in this country, and I, I don't apologise for using that word, um, is in, in a way all of a piece with other ignorance of Science, But it is exacerbated and ma- made worse, of course, by um, the bizarre idea that the origin myth of one particular Middle Eastern tribe of camel herders... <laughs> <laughs> precedence over any of the other hundreds of origin myths (laughs) that exist (laughs) all all over the world. (laughs) That that is very sad and and that is being abetted by um, forces, political forces, which are undoubtedly more powerful in this country than they are in my own. We have lunatics and idiots in Britain too. <laughs> but they don't get political power. How do you think that something like good characterism how could brood parasitism evolve in the first place? Brood parasitism is common within species. A large number of ducks, for example, do what's called egg dumping, where a female, w- w- although she has a perfectly good nest of her own and is laying eggs in, in that nest, she will dump the odd egg in somebody else's nest. And that's common, and that happens uh, in a large number of different species, and it may be more common than we ever realized. So it might have started like that, and then you might have got individuals who specialized in egg dumping uh, rather than, more or less, accidentally doing it. Remember that that animal behavior is, I mean, one, one uses... A sort of pseudo-teleological language and one talks as if animals are doing things de- deliberately and even genes doing things deliberately. But it's all a very mechanical process and one has to think of birds as automata wired up to respond to stimuli in certain ways. Uh, as illustrations of that, um, birds Frequently, when flying past the nest of another bird and seeing the bright red gape of a cuckoo in somebody else's nest, not not their own, will be diverted with a caterpillar in in their mouth, diverted from their own, flying to their own nest to feed their own young, diverted to feed this strange cuckoo in a a strange nest. It's just the the power of that stimulus, of, of, of the red gape, is enough to trigger something in the nervous system that makes them, makes them do it. Uh, there's even a famous photograph of a bird, I forget which species it is, dropping food into the gaping mouth of a goldfish, which has come to the <laughs> s- surface of, of, uh, of, a, of a bowl. So the, these are little automata, these are little mechanical robots, which are responding to stimuli. And so, when, when you have a situation like that, it's ripe for exploitation. Either more or less inadvertent, as in the case of the, of the goldfish, that's how it would start, and then it would gradually turn into a specialization, um, exploiting that um, uh, automatic reflex. Um, y- yes, sir?
1: Have you had any thoughts as to why all the various species of dinosaurs have become extinct,
0: while older uh, forms such as snakes, turtles, and crocodilians uh, survived the same events? It, I, I don't have any particularly informed thoughts. Um, the the current vogue view is that the dinosaurs were killed by a cataclysmic event, by a a, a, a meteorite or a, or a comet which which hit the Earth. It's seems likely that a lot of the dinosaurs were already going extinct before that happened and uh, in particular it seems that the the smaller dinosaurs uh, were beginning to go extinct and it was the larger dinosaurs, the more dramatic ones, which ended up being killed off by the comet. There seems no doubt that there really was an impact, a a major impact at the end of the Cretaceous. Um, What's in dispute is whether that was the sole cause of the demise of the dinosaurs or not. As to why those creatures that did survive did uh, probably for different reasons in different, different cases. Um, in the case of the mammals it's often been suggested it's because they were nocturnal uh, in the case or, or maybe even hibernating um, in the case you mentioned of crocodilians and, and turtles, I, I have no particular suggestion to make um, yes sir. You mentioned um, with the female um, cuckoos how they may misdiscriminate and that world. that may lead to new gentees being formed. How often do they misdiscriminate
1: and how often is it successful that new gentees? Okay. Often-
0: um, the question is, is how often do female cuckoos make a mistake and lay an egg in the wrong host nest? Um, about 10% which is quite high, and so what it means is that all that rhetoric of mine of, you know, all your ancestors from way back have been in a meadow pipit's nest, that was was an exaggeration. Um, uh, It's it's something like 10%, and uh, each one of those mistakes is potentially the origin of a new gens. And presumably, gentees get started quite often, but presumably they get killed off quite often, too, because if, you, if, if a new gens tr- tries to start in a species of host which is already cuckoo-savvy, has already been through an arms race with, with cuckoos, they'll get short shrift because the host will immediately spot that the egg is the, is the wrong kind of egg. Um, I was going to say something else I've forgotten. Um, I, I see the chairman is, is <laughs> hovering. Um, <laughs> do, do, do we need to stop? No, no. no we have uh, Well, um, shall we have what, one more? Um, yes, the lady there, there I think. Yeah.
1: So actually, I was going to ask you to explain how, how um, extinction comes about, especially more rapidly now, but I'm actually more curious by your last question,
0: still really made to want to know how
1: does it get into the
0: genes? If you accident, you said it
1: might start a new gen, genus. Genes By accidentally putting it in the wrong... Yes. How
0: does that go into a gene? Oh, okay. Um, did, did you hear the question? Okay. Um, when, a, when a female cuckoo makes a mistake and lays an egg in the wrong host species, and I refer to that as that's how a new gens get, gets formed, The questioner asks, but how does it get into the genes? Well, the answer is that the habit of laying in that host doesn't get into the genes. The habit of laying in the particular host nest um, is purely traditional. It's mimic, nemetic, not genetic. But over successive generations, as the daughter and granddaughter and great-granddaughters of that mistaken cuckoo, assuming that some of her daughters survive. Her daughters will immediately be imprinted upon the wrong species because the, the rule of thumb that's in their head is notice what species of nest you grew, you grew up in and go back to a nest like that when, it's, when it comes to laying your own egg. So they will automatically persist in that sense that the new gens instantly comes into being the moment a female cuckoo makes a mistake. But the new gens, of course, won't show good egg mimicry until many, many, many generations later. I mean, more than 700 years later, if Davies is to be believed, and Davies and Chaucer are to be believed. Um, so, but if eventually, the idea is that natural selection comes along afterwards, and working on the genes for making egg patterns uh, produces eggs that uh, resemble the new host. That's, that, that would be how Davies would, 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 would answer the question. Um, I, think I want to thank you again. Okay.
1: For a wonderful lecture, a great treat, and remember next week, same time, same place. Uh, the second of the lectures will will be presented. Thank you all for coming.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.